0: Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic with all the changes to schooling and daily life is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. Welcome back to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. Today, I'm super excited to have on the show a guest who has dedicated, frankly, much of his life to reforming government and now education. He's on a quest to bring America's public education into the 21st century, something we'd all love to see. And there's one solution that he believes is really key to making that happen. Something called charter schools have produced what some experts believe to be some of the most rapid academic improvement in American history and are creating a reform model now other cities are trying to emulate now for over 10 years david osborne was a senior partner of the public strategies group which is a consulting firm that help public organizations improve their performance so he's worked with governments large and small from cities counties and school districts up to states federal agencies and even foreign governments he's lectured widely around the globe and has advised presidents ministers, governors, and many other public sector leaders. Now, currently, David is the emeritus director of the K-12 education work of the Progressive Policy Institute, which is a democratic think tank in Washington, D.C. He's also the author or co-author of six nonfiction books, including his most recent, Reinventing America's Schools, Creating a 21st Century School System. So our main topic for today is really how can we modernize public education? And as part of that, we're going to take an in-depth look at charter schools, something that I'm quite new to and really interested to learn more about. So, David, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I can see, you know, you've had a, wow, a really long history in, in trying to reform government to make it more, more innovative, more effective. Now, what, what compelled you to shift your focus after that endeavor to education?
1: Well, education is arguably one of the most important things we do in the public sector. You could argue that defense is more important, (laughs) but in the long run education is incredibly important to any society's future. So I've always focused on education as part of the public sector. It's just that we called our bestseller Reinventing Government, and people in education don't think they're part of government. Uh, They are. It's the public sector. Their school boards are elected. They're funded by taxpayers, it's government, but in the the United States, people in education don't really think of it that way. So I thought, I have believed for a long time since charter schools were invented that they were actually showing us how to organize public education in the 21st century, in the information age. You know, the way we organize it in most school districts is a century out of date. It emerged in the early 1900s when the modern way to organize any business or public sector operation was a centralized bureaucracy, very hierarchical, which had a monopoly, and was essentially controlled through lots and lots of rules. These are rule-driven organizations, not mission-driven organizations. And that worked pretty well during the industrial era. It's the best we could do at that time. But technologies have changed. The pace of change has speeded up. And in today's world, it's increasingly dysfunctional and under stress. And people are increasingly frustrated with it because it it changes just so slowly. It's It's built to be stable. And, you know, once our public school districts unionized in the 1960s and 70s, it became even more rigid, far more rules. Um, So it's very hard to change. Um, And we invented charter schools as a way around it, as a way to create a a sector in public education that was pro-innovation, that welcomed innovation, that rewarded successful innovation. And I've thought for a long time that shows us what we should do with our school districts. Um, well,
0: before we, um, yeah, I'd love to you know, before we dive into charter schools and kind of this this um, this ray of hope and possibility that, that you've you've seen. I'd love to step back for a moment. I mean, you talked about how important you know education is in the public sector, perhaps arguably the the most important, and and that would certainly resonate with me. What what would you say is what is the purpose of education? I like sometimes to ask my guests that, right? Because we all have a different notion of what education is and what it's for. And so, you know, through, through your lens of research and being involved in the public sector, what, what do you feel, what is education serving?
1: You know, we all have our own answers to that question. There's no right answer. Um, and it turns out that that's one of the problems of running a school district where all the schools are supposed to be the same, because The citizens have different answers, but the system's supposed to have just one answer. So, I mean, I would say it's a combination of preparing people to lead uh, productive, fulfilled lives, lives, and preparing them to be economically viable in the workforce, in the marketplace, et cetera. So, you know, I see it as a combination of those two things. But it is a source of conflict. There, there is no sort of right answer, no consensual agreement. And different parents and different people have different priorities. Absolutely. Um, and those, those get battled out on, in elected school boards.
0: Yeah, and, and not to mention, um, I mean, just some of my background, I mean, we, my kids um, largely didn't attend a public school, though I don't have um, two that are in, in high school. But back in the early days, uh, we kind of did like a split test, if you will, where my, my daughter was half the day in, in kindergarten and half the day at home. And we kind of had like this, this way of kind of testing two different models and approaches and saw what was bringing her alive and what wasn't. And we just, found that the, the school approach was just largely failing compared to what we were able to to innovate at home right Just and so you know one of the things that i'm i'm curious about to, to to explore with you is just how you know in general i mean ken robinson talked about this as well right how schools generally kill that creativity that we want to foster in, in kids and how we need to shift from a model of kind of mass produced from the industrial age as you pointed out to you know where we can kind of focus on each student's learning journey um do you think is that is that possible to happen in, in public education?
1: Yes, it is. Um but it it requires a real reimagining of what a school is. You know, in the industrial era, we lined the kids up in rows at desks and we we pushed information at them. Um, we still do. Treat, <laughs> we treated them all the same. Well, you're right. Uh it is changing but at a glacial pace. We treated them all the same. We thought that was the fair thing to do, even though kids come from different backgrounds and learn in different ways and are interested in different things. And reimagining to assist to a school that treats every child as an individual and tries to help that individual find their, what, what engages them and their best, best path to learning. Um, that's, a, that's a huge task. It is happening. We have schools like that. Most of them are in the charter sector because charter schools, by definition, have autonomy. They can do roughly what they want within certain limits. Uh, But there are some districts, school districts in the United States anyway, that are beginning to treat some of their own schools like charter schools. They call them innovation schools or renaissance schools. And and we see a lot of innovation there, too. But it's it's a huge step, as you know, personalizing. Uh, rather than the batch processing, uh, going to personalized education. It's, it's a real challenge.
0: Well, let's, uh, let's, let's dive into a bit about charter schools, which, which you've, you've seen as kind of like a, a direction for you know, schools to, to go into and for education to become more individualized. So what, what you know, start with first, what is a, a charter school for those listening who aren't familiar with that? And then what's been the results of these charter schools in the system?
1: But a charter school is a public school that is independent of a school district. Um, it's not; it doesn't have to follow all the school district rules and policies. Um, it gets to hire who it wants. It gets to fire who it wants. It has a board. Most charter schools are nonprofits, nonprofit organizations. Ten to fifteen percent are for profit, and that has been problematic has created some excellent schools and some cases of fraud. So mostly what I'm supporting is the idea of not-for-profit charter schools. They can be one school, or if they're successful, they often create another and another, and and you now get a system of charter schools under one board. That board hires principals. The principals hire and fire the teachers, and they have the freedom to provide the education that will meet the needs of the students in front of them. And that's very different from place to place. If you're, in inner, if you're in inner city New Orleans, you know, with 90% African-American, low-income kids, what you do is to meet their needs is probably going to be very different than if you're in uh, suburban uh, Minneapolis with a bunch of white, uh, upper middle class kids. The whole point is that we, we have different kinds of kids, and we need different kinds of schools to meet their needs. Charter schools, finally, are schools of choice. No one has to go to a charter school, and they get funded only if people choose them. There, it depends. Different states have different laws, but essentially the idea is that the money for the child leaves the district and goes to the charter school when the parents choose the charter school. I see. Okay. That's what makes them controversial. Right, because They're they are money in yeah. so school districts.
0: Yeah. It, it you know. As an entrepreneur myself, it, it sounds like a very entrepreneurial model, right? Essentially, it is. Get, you're giving it, absolutely. It's it's like a small like nonprofit in this sense, but like a, a an organization that's basically it, It's only going to be successful if it attracts students, and it's only going to attract students if it has a compelling offer that um that resonates with with families out there, right? So they have to deliver a, a product that um that families want to
1: by, essentially, right? Exactly. But there's one other element that I have to talk about. We've discovered the hard way through experience that in some places where parents have really low education levels and are quite poor, um, having a safe, warm, nurturing school is enough. And the kids can be learning very little. And the parents won't necessarily realize it and won't necessarily pull their kids out of school. So every charter school has an authorizer. This is a public body that says you get to operate a school or you don't get to operate a school. And typically you get a charter for five years and the the authorizer grants it to you because you seem to have potential, your organization, you put together a good plan, and after five years it reviews your performance. Your charter is like a performance contract. It's supposed to have goals for what you're going to achieve. What level students are going to be achieving at, for example. How satisfied will the parents be? How satisfied will the students be? After five years, the authorizer, which could be, it's, it's, it could be a school district. It could be a state board of education. It could be a, a public university in a few states. And it could be a dedicated board created by the state to do this. Uh, So there are different, different variations. But after five years, the authorizer looks at the performance. Is the school meeting its goals? Is it meeting the needs of the students? And it decides whether to give another five years. Or if the school is really excellent, in some states you can get seven years or 10 years for your next charter so that you don't have to be renewed as often. But the point is... These schools are autonomous, but they're also accountable. If they're performing poorly, in many places the parents will desert them and they'll have to close. And when that doesn't happen, if they're still if they're performing poorly, the authorizer is supposed to close them. So they are truly accountable for performance in a way that district schools simply are not.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, Dave, I'd be curious to know, um... You know, what first got you excited about charter schools? I mean, you have some some success stories that uh, you can share that kind of help people understand what what difference um, charter schools are making?
1: Well, I guess what first got me excited was the variety. You know, the first charter school in America, which was in the Twin Cities in St. Paul, it's called City Academy. It was for kids who dropped out or were about close to dropping out or had been in juvenile detention and come back, or it was for kids who just weren't flourishing at all in the typical system. And then the second or third one was for deaf kids. And then many of them are for poor kids. They're really aimed at low-income kids. They tend to cluster in the inner city because that's where the need was so intense. Uh, The public schools were just failing. So the fact that they were designed to meet the needs of kids who were who whose needs were not being met in the in the public system was was important but then i you know you see these innovative models there's there's a group of there's a number of charter schools in minnesota that are organized as teacher collectives and when the teachers run the school almost always the school switches quickly to project based learning because every teacher knows that you know Lecturing the kids doesn't really engage most of them, but projects engage most of them. That's fascinating. So yeah. these schools became project-based schools. And you go in there and it looked like, you know, every, it looked like a newsroom. What newsrooms look like in a newspaper? Every child had a desk with a computer. It wasn't rows of, you know, it wasn't a classroom. Kids are at their computers working on projects or they're off in a meeting room working on a team project. Um, Sounds a
0: bit like a co-working space for kids.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And with the, the teachers became coaches and mentors, you know, rather than just lecturers and sort of trying to pour knowledge into the kids. They were helping the kids learn which is far more effective for most kids. But again, we can't generalize. Kids are different. I mean, the old model worked really well for me. I love books. <laughs> I love learning from books. Um, I, I like ideas. So their kids are different and we need different schools for, to meet their, all of their needs. Um, the final thing that got me really excited was seeing what happened when an entire city converted to charter schools. Mm. New Orleans was the city. Right. And it had clearly, yes, after Hurricane Katrina, which wiped out the old system, it went bankrupt. Uh, the state basically took over most of the schools, put them in something called the recovery school district. And that district gradually converted five or six a year to charters. And it became, the, for the next decade, became the fastest improving city in the country. Now, it started as one of the worst districts in the country. And since it's full of poor, mostly African American kids, it's still only kind of gone from an F to a C. It's 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 not a high-performing district. It's kind of average for Louisiana now. But that rapid progress just is is it's stunning. And we've seen the same thing in cities like Washington D.C., which is now almost half charters, um, and is the sec has been the second most rapidly improving city in the country. So that. You know, I, I believed in the theory, but but practice has proven it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really inspiring. Um, particularly the, the story about New Orleans, which I was reading about and preparing for the, for the interview. I mean, that was such a... I mean, it, they had the opportunity to really to, to, to reinvent education in a time that was quite devastating. So right now, as you said, like with charter schools... What seems to really make it work is kind of this ability for these charter schools to they have the autonomy and, and power to, to make choices, you know, who they hire and fire, the type of uh, learning approach that they take. There's also the accountability that you, that you pointed out both to their funder and as well as to, you know, parents because they can choose whether or not to go to a charter school. Why, is, why are charter schools not uh, everywhere then if this is going, working so well?
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's the question, isn't it? <laughs>
0: the elephant in the um, room.
1: And, you know, they they are growing Uh, Their Last year, uh, their enrollment grew by seven percent, while district enrollment fell by an estimated two to three percent. These are estimates, but the seven percent number is pretty hard. It just came out of a study. So, you know, they continue to grow every year. Why don't they grow faster? Because they are a threat to school districts and to teachers unions. So most charter schools don't unionize. They can uh, There's one state, Maryland, where they have to unionize. Most choose not to because they don't want the rigidity that comes with a union contract that's, you know, some of these union contracts are 150 pages long and they just, they dot all the T's and I's and cross all the T's and they, they it's like a straitjacket. So the people, people who are supposed to run the school don't actually have the power. In fact, people don't realize this, but I just want to point out, if you're a principal in a large school district, the chances are that you can't hire who you want. Your teachers get assigned to you. You can't fire anybody unless they're in their first one, two, or three years of teaching because they get tenure. And it's, theoretically you can fire them, but it takes like 2,000 hours of work, and, and it's not worth it and you control less than 1% of your budget. All of the key decisions are made in central headquarters. And that's what I mean by a system that's 100 years out of date. So we're asking people who are supposedly managing the school to manage without all of those powers that a manager usually takes for granted. The ability to control their budget and control their staff, decide who's a, who's a good teacher, who's not, who, who should be in which grade, all of those things. So it's no wonder that our school system struggles so much. Most of them aren't unionized. So the teachers unions, as charters grow, the teachers unions shrink. And that's not a threat to teachers because teachers flourish in charter schools. It's a threat to the unions and their staffs. And these people, these people are very well paid. I mean, the people who run the big teachers unions get paid in the neighborhood of half a million dollars a year. And they have dozens and dozens of people who make $200,000 a year. So it's a threat. And the district, it's a threat to the district as well, because it has to lay people out, off if it, if it shrinks. And that's very painful. And elected school boards hate that. They, they sometimes have to close schools because they don't have enough kids left. And economically, they can't continue to run all the schools they had. So they have to close buildings. And they hate that. It's controversial. It causes a ruckus, and uh, they would prefer to keep their monopoly and, and not have anybody taking away students from them. So they're both politically powerful. In the Democratic Party, the teachers' unions typically the, the most powerful force in this country, and uh, they often get their way, and they often elect school boards. In, in the United States, school board turnout at school board elections is often 10%. Doesn't take much to and teachers vote bring people in, yeah, and their spouses vote. Yeah. so the unions have enormous sway over elected school boards.
0: Hmm. So you know, for yourself and for those you know parents listening out there, particularly in the U.S., what what is there to do then? I um, mean, you know, like a lot of there's a lot of innovation happening outside of public education, which you know we feature a lot here on on this podcast, and uh, you know, it's particularly in the last couple of years, I think pre COVID, but also certainly during. COVID has really, you know, really shown a lot of the, the things that aren't working with education and, and you know, entrepreneurs have kind of become kind of fed up and, and trying to take matters into their own hands, if you will, and just saying, that, you know, there's there's a better way than them what's being offered. So for parents listening out there, I mean, is there much hope in in overcoming these massive hurdles to so that their kids or other kids can um, experience the kind of innovation you're talking about, which, you know, frankly, sounds a lot like these other Innovative um, approaches I'm seeing outside of the school system, right? Like, um, like my my son Graham attends a, an online program through a, a platform called Galileo. It's very self-driven. You know, yeah, it's it's he can choose whatever he wants to to focus on. He, he has pro- project-based learning and, and such as well. And but again, you know, that's that's something outside the system. is something that could launch in in a year or two. So,
1: but you you know you see it a lot in the charter sector, and you see schools that are The kids spend half their time online using software. Yeah, that's what I mean. It it sounds
0: very, very similar, which is exciting.
1: And then they'll spend the other half of their time on projects and in seminars and on what they call expeditions, uh, you know, like a two-week trip somewhere uh, to learn something or putting on a performance musical performance or a play. Yeah, which is fantastic. I, I mean, there's just, there's so much you can do. And technology innate, has enabled so much that you're right. The, the, the innovation is explosive. It's just not usually in school districts. But what parents can do, I mean, look for choices, look for alternatives, whether private schools, charter schools, uh, or po- these pods that have popped up during covid Um and also the virtual schools, if, if your child is the kind of child who will flourish in that environment. Some do, some don't. But you have a local school district, and there are now several dozen school districts around the country that have some form of, quote, innovation zone or innovation schools where charter-like rules apply. Um, the schools have a lot more autonomy. They have more accountability. The parents have choices. And the schools are, are encouraged to differentiate and innovate. Um, Indianapolis, something like a third of the kids are in schools like that now. Uh, so push, push your local school board to, to explore those things. Um, my project at the Progressive Policy Institute, um, which we call Reinventing American Schools, we pu- do research and publish about this stuff. Um, And so we can put people in touch with um, lots of folks in these different cities who are are doing a good job with innovation schools or innovation zone. Get your school district to go look at them, uh, your school board to go look at them, your superintendent and, and the superintendent staff, just to incur. And, you know, if it comes down to it, run for school board yourself and propose these things. We, it, this doesn't have to be threatening to school districts. I mean, school districts can do this. They can create, carve out a, a zone where they do things differently than they did 100 years ago. And it's worked.
0: Are you seeing some, um, some I guess, some more recent examples of effective change where change has been, I guess, what, what, are, what are some of the paths you've seen that have brought about that, that change um, that can be modeled?
1: I'm sorry, what are some of the policies? Well, or, so
0: if, if a parent out there is you know, saying, yeah, this, this sounds really interesting and mm-hmm. you know, I'd like to help support this idea of innovation schools or, or, or charter schools, as you look at you know, areas of, of the country that have started to make that shift, what ultimately was the lever that, um, uh, that made
1: that happen? It's because so many of our education system rules are embedded in state law, it always seems to take action by state government. Uh, you know, our education system is, is run by the states. The Constitution left education to the states. And the feds have gradually gotten involved and they spend 9% of the money or it, cha- it changes, it depends, you know, during COVID it's gone up, but let's say 9% of the money in the system. But the real Control is exercised at the state level, the definition of what you can do and what you can't do. So, for example, to be able to create charter schools, you have to pass a charter school law. A state legislature has to pass it. To create a viable innovation zone, you need some action by state government as well. Otherwise, all the rules and policies will get in your way. They'll make it impossible. Um, For example, you'll have to be part of the district collective bargaining agreement with the teachers' union. And you actually need to negotiate a different one with your teachers so that there's much more flexibility. And maybe you can pay them better for longer hours. But if state law doesn't allow that, you can't do it. So that's That's the first step. And then the districts have to want to do it. Um, States can pressure districts to, to do it. And in fact, the state of Texas, interestingly, has created really powerful incentives for districts to do this. Because if you have a failing school, if a school has an F grade in the state grading system for five years in a row, the state can either force that school to be closed or can appoint a new school board for that district. And districts don't want that to happen. But if you turn operation of that school over to a nonprofit organization and make it an innovation school, they call them partnership schools in Texas, Then you get two more years before that consequence kicks in. And you get an extra $1,000 a year, roughly, it depends on the school, roughly $1,000 a year per child for that school. Yeah. So you got got more money. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so several dozen school districts in Texas are doing this. And some of them, you know, are doing it in a half-hearted way. And some of them are doing it in a really significant way and making a huge difference. And some of them are really big districts like San Antonio, Fort Worth.
0: Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me, again, to incentivizing the, the behaviors you're, you're looking for, right? Creating the, the right climate rather than more of a punitive approach, um, more of an incentive approach yeah. to, to making things and happen. Because
1: there's, there are still district schools, and it's still local folks making the decision, they're not so threatening. The district's not losing money to, to charter schools. These are usually in-district charter schools, in Texas, which is a separate category, but districts can give them as much autonomy as they want to, and typically they don't give them enough because of their habits. <laughs> you know, they're so used to 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 not to, to the school not being able to make some of these decisions, but you know they learn over time.
0: Is there any anything else that uh, we haven't covered today, David? That you think would be really important to to highlight?
1: Uh, well, I, I want to we we didn't have much time to talk about different models that have emerged that are so exciting. Yeah, let's, let's do that. Uh, I'd, love to, I'd love to talk about a few. Um, one of my favorites is a charter group in California called Summit Public Schools, which has, I think, eight or nine schools in the Bay Area, and then a couple of schools up in Washington State that are newer. They realized they have kids who are, they're not uh, the poorest, Kids, they're not inner city. Well, some of them are, but they're low income, a lot Hispanic, uh, Latino, Um, but a mix, some, you know, there's a mix of middle and working class and poor kids. And they, after being very successful for their first decade, they surveyed all their graduates to find out how they'd done after high school and how many of them had completed college in four years and they actually beat the national averages. They were up at I think I think it was 55 or 65% had graduated or were on track to graduate from college. But that wasn't good enough for them. They wanted, you know, 90%. They want they their t- their aim was much higher and they were shocked. So they went back to the drawing board and they 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 had focus groups of the students and did sur- graduates and they did surveys of the graduates. And one of the things they learned was that they had essentially held the students' hands too much. You know, whenever there was a problem that the student was struggling with, they some adults would come in and really help and get that student past that obstacle, you know, finish the paper or what, whatever it was. But that's not, that doesn't exist in college. You're on your own. And the kids weren't ready for that. So they, they basically, all their teachers were involved. They reinvented how they do things. And now each child spends about half their time at a computer screen using software, either at home or at school, and doing their acquiring knowledge, learning math, learning history, learning English, um, just the, the knowledge acquisition part. And when they've... When they finished a unit, well, for each unit, they have a playlist, a series of options for how they could learn this material, something they could read, a video they could watch, a game they could play. I mean, there are different options. And when they feel they've mastered the, the topic, they take a little test of 10 questions. And if, passed, if they get eight of, at least eight of them right, they can check that off and move on to the next topic. So they've broken down all the standards into this. But what's exciting? Well, two things. One, the kids are in control of this. They have to, you know, no one's sitting there with a whip. They have to learn how to take control of their own learning. And it took some of them a, a year to get it. You know, they would just kind of sit back and wait for something to happen because that's what you do in school. That's what you, Yeah, you've been trained that way. So they learn that. And then what they do with the other 50% of the time, that's where the teachers spend most of their time doing projects and seminars um, and really doing uh, stuff that engages kids. And then every eight weeks, they stop and do a, what they call expeditions for two weeks with a whole different teaching staff. The regular teachers get to take a two-week break for professional development and, and recharging their batteries. and then, Another teaching staff comes in, and expeditions can be an in-depth seminar. They can be a trip somewhere. They can be putting on a play. They can be internships for the kids. Um, all kinds of varieties. And the idea is to give the kids experiences that are life-changing. Um, the theory is that you know upper-middle-class kids, their parents make sure their kids, as they grow up, have experiences. And by the way, these are middle and high schools, not elementaries but make sure their kids have experiences that, that broaden them and deepen them and change their lives and enrich their lives. But poor kids don't usually get as much of that. So the idea is let's make sure they do. And the combination is, is just wonderful. And on top of that, this Summit Public Schools decided we want to share what we have. Google had lent them engineers to create their software. And so they give their software away. And if you you as a school, you could be a district school or a charter school, doesn't matter, but a public school, if you want to try this, say in one grade, and then maybe adopt it for your school, this whole approach, uh, they will work with you and help you. So like 300 schools around the country, this was several years ago last I checked, there were 300 some odd schools around the country that were doing this. they're spreading this innovation. And that's all we need. We need a system that encourages people to do that. And we instead, we have a system that discourages them, that throws up constant barriers.
0: Well, I think it's a great story to, to, to end with, David. I appreciate you sharing about that. I, I've been just getting goosebumps just listening to it, right? That just the, the thought of all these kids alive and teachers alive and, and experiencing life and figuring out their path and having a passion for... For learning that's that's really what you know all of us as parents want for our kids so they can tackle the you know the problems of the future right with with confidence and, and courage and 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 an innovation so I really appreciate you coming on on the show today and kind of shining the light on some of the innovation that's happening in the U.S. system through through charter schools and innovation schools and and whatnot and appreciate all the dedication you've had to you know trying to make education a, a place where children can can thrive so appreciate well thank you
1: Thank you. And I I appreciate what you're doing with the podcast. Um, We need to modernize education. There's just no two ways about it. (laughs)
0: Uh, I'll uh, cheers to that. (laughs) All right. Thanks, David.
1: Yeah. Okay. Take
0: care.